This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. It is great to have you with us. And it's also great to be able to hear from somebody who's done a lot of thinking. And that thinking has produced ideas. Because talking, fantastic. Conversation, excellent. A lot of things can come out of brainstorming. But at the same time, having ideas is so important. And we have an incredible idea person with us right now. Amira Algawabi joins us. And Amira, you might read in the Toronto Star. You might have seen her TEDx talk, or you might see her in any number of places. Amira, it feels like you are everywhere, and thank you for that. Mike, you know, it's uh, it's a very difficult time. And so, um, you know, all of us uh, who, are, who are feeling this pain right now just want to be able to be proactive and speak out um, against, you know, what's happened in London uh, with this tragedy uh, affecting us, the Afzal family. Um, and so it's it's just, you know, we all just want to do our part, I think, to, to commemorate what's happened and to, you know, make sure that we we do something to honor this family and, and um, stamp out hate however we can. Absolutely. And the vigil last night, it was there to honor the family. It was also there to try and see if if maybe we can we can find a way forward in this so that the memory of an incredible part of this community is always there in what has happened as we move forward. Amira, you very quickly tweeted some ideas, some ideas on what can be done, not saying let's never let this happen again because we don't want it to happen again, not just adding your voice to the voices that were already there, but ideas on what we could do to improve ourselves. What do you see that could be done that would actually have an impact and a chance to change some things that need to be changed? Right, Mike. So, um, yeah, based on just the work uh, that has been done in communities across Canada around issues of hate, there have been sort of common threads that have come out. So, number one, you know, you can't really solve a problem unless you know the extent of it and the depth of it. And when it comes to hate crimes and hate in this country, we actually don't really know what's going on in our neighborhoods. The reason for that is a couple. Number one, we don't actually hear from victims of crime very often. Up to two-thirds of people who have been victimized uh, in some kind of hate incident or even a crime have told Statistics Canada that they will not report it. They do not feel comfortable reporting that to police. Why that might be is through my work, I've seen um, people not wanting to, for example, go to the police station. They are intimidated or they're fearful. Um, or if they have to call the police to their home, they're uncomfortable with having a cruiser parked outside their door. They may already feel marginalized and feel you know, vulnerable in that way. Um, and so one of the ways that we can address this, and we've started to do this here in Ottawa, is encourage people, if they have been a victim, to report that online. And then the, the police can take that report, at least have a documented record 
do their investigation, have some contact through phone in a way that's not intimidating to the victim, and try to get to the bottom of what's occurred. And if there's a perpetrator, you know, do the best to apprehend that person. Um, that is one way that we can try to get a better sense of what's going on. And once we have those, the sense of what's going on, we can then start to apply some solutions. And again, some of those solutions are to think about, you know, um, do we need community uh, training around issues of bystander um, intervention? Do we need anti-racism training in our schools? And absolutely, I believe we do. Do we need to um, work with all all levels of government to set up what you know, are called anti-racism directorates. So basically, these would be directorates that are funded to, to help sort of coordinate the process of addressing hate in our communities. Um, there's been calls for a national summit on Islamophobia. I would extend that type of summit that would look at these issues um, to look at all issues of hate right now. Because in this pandemic, we've seen um, the toxic brew of conspiracy theorists coming together with far-right groups and the narratives against Asian Canadians, against Canadian Muslims, against Jewish Canadians. They're all overlapping. And this hate is creating a very dangerous climate. So if we can bring people together, if we can understand again, get a sense of the problem, then each level of government can be held accountable to how they are or aren't properly addressing this issue, and that would certainly help. Um, and you know, the other thing that I, you know, that that we really need to think about um, is in terms of, you know, when people are victims of hate, what kind of support services are available? This is something again makes it very difficult for people to go back and tell uh, anyone what's occurred to them uh, if there's no follow-up. Um, and so these are just some of the ideas that uh, that have been happening. And again, the online space is one in which we know a lot of hate is proliferating. And we're sitting, you know, sort of counting the days and the minutes to hear from the federal government, where is that online hate re- legislation that they've been promising us for some time now? Because we need to rein in those spaces. There's a lot of uh, very dangerous ideas that are being shared and spread about communities. Um, and that we don't know if that's what led this perpetrator in London to do this, you know, this act of terror that he that he committed. Um, but certainly we know there's a lot of poison out there that uh, has impacted on um, other communities already. Amira Agawabi joining us. Amira can be read in the Toronto Star, has been a, a human rights activist, done TEDx talks, and we're lucky to have you and 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 someone who can put together some of these ideas. We're going back in time and seeing, well, there was there was Motion 103, and then it wasn't supported, and things kind of went away for a while. And then, as you say, we're waiting for online hate legislation. Are you surprised at how slowly this seems to be turning, or are you encouraged that you're seeing signs that it may be moving forward? I do see there are signs moving forward, and I'll tell you why, Mike. Um, You know, after Quebec City, uh, can you imagine that some politicians didn't even want to use the term Islamophobia? Um, that we actually had to fight four years to get the government to acknowledge and commemorate uh, January 29th as a national day of remembrance and action on Islamophobia itself. So we're there now. Last night at, at the vigil, you heard, you know, unanimity. Islamophobia is real. 
people are targeted because of their Muslim faith. We've known that within our own communities. We've known that for years. But sadly, society has taken time to catch up. And it's taken the massacre in Quebec City. It's taken this latest massacre of this beautiful family uh, in London for people to, you know, wake up and understand that this is real. This is happening. Um, and the ways in which different communities are targeted are different. But it's all the same poison. And that is what we need to find an antidote for. When we look at, at finding that poison, if you are someone who is a victim of that poison, you can find it pretty regularly. When it comes to finding it so that, that we can make it stop, how hard do you think this is going to be? I mean, it, it's really going to take a lot of effort from various institutions. You know, we have to think about what's happening, as I said, in our schools, in our universities, you know, with young people. This this perpetrator, this accused person is, I believe, 20 years old. That's a that's a young person. What, you know, when we think about growing up in a, in a diverse community, you know, like London or Ottawa or anywhere else in the, in the country, many of our communities are very diverse. You would assume that some of these older attitudes, perhaps you assume they're older attitudes of, of you know, people who have not had as much exposure with, with diversity. But this young person, you know, what what on earth uh, was he exposed to to make him hate, uh, you know, a community this much that he would murder people in broad daylight just going on a walk? You know, it, the questions are endless. Um, and so we need a real multi-pronged approach to address it. And that, that's a fancy way for saying we all need to figure out what is our role, you know, whatever we were in our workplaces, um, you know, in, in the public space, like what are we able to do in our own spaces to advance anti-racism work, to talk about these things, to make it safe for people to bring up their concerns um, and to address systemic racism. We don't want to wait for people to be murdered to be having these conversations. You know, we want to immediately have them when someone makes a, a racist joke, when someone spreads a racist meme, when someone uh, may not hire someone else because, you know, they don't like their last name or they've judged them based on, on you know, the color of their skin. We need to have these conversations now and we need to address these attitudes at their root instead of waiting for them to, you know, grow into something much more sinister. Amira Agawabi joining us. You mentioned anti-racism education. Do you see that starting right away in school? Do you see it being more of a productive conversation for perhaps some of the older grades and then up into high school and beyond? You know, I leave that question to the educators. There are so many fantastic um you know, efforts already being made in our education system to address this. You know, many school boards now have adopted and hired, you know, um, people to work specifically on issues of inclusion, of diversity, of anti-oppression. That's excellent. So what we need to do is further sort of embed anti-racism education right throughout, you know, from, you know, right from kindergarten all throughout. And there's ways to talk about this already in Ontario's um, you know, curriculum for, for example, grade two, I have a second grader, so I know this, uh, they learn about different cultures, right? So why don't we take it one step for, further and just talk about, okay, we learned about these different cultures. Sometimes people will say bad things about other cultures. How do we address it? There's a way to talk about these things, even that young. And children, you know, if they're exposed to the news that we've just seen on Sunday, then we can certainly expose them to, as I said, that antidote. How do we make everyone feel respected, loved, treat them with dignity, regardless of any type of characteristic that they have. Um, and so, you know, the, the building blocks of that already exists in our curriculum, to be honest. It really is about, you know, doing more thinking and more implementing. And 
I also want to really say about, you know, the parents of many children. Like, how do we reach parents? Because sometimes these harmful attitudes are coming from the home as well. And sometimes they're coming from teachers themselves. So we, we really need to think about how are we promoting anti-racism, um, you know, thinking and narratives, you know, beyond our kids, but to the adults in their lives as well. Because there are those microaggressions. You mentioned a meme or a joke or things that seem so small that we need to realize you take a whole bunch of small things, they make a big thing really fast, don't they? Well, they, they, what, what happens is it emboldens these attitudes, right? So it's sort of like, you know, if you make a joke and it falls flat, you know you're not going to make that joke again. But when you say things and people sort of respond to it, uh, positively or, you know, seem to think it's amusing, you think that, okay, you know, this is this is working for me. And you begin to think that it's acceptable uh, to hold those types of views. Um, you begin to share that type of content or, you know, you find yourself in a community where people are reinforcing themselves uh, through these types of harmful attitudes. Um, and so absolutely, if someone in your life, you know, is saying or sharing things that are inappropriate, um, whatever it is, whether it's sexist or homophobic or racist, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, the whole gamut, you know, we have to call it out for sure. Um, and it's not only, as I said, not only on the individual level, because many of us as individuals, we hold power in different ways. So we, we may hold power in our workplace. So that means that we have to see, like, is is the way that we are creating our workplaces is there systemic discrimination happening and we don't even realize? It? Is there implicit bias happening? Look around. Is your is your team diverse? Is it representative of the city that you live in? Um, you know, who who are you engaging with in terms of you know the services that you receive? How do you treat people? It's it's really looking inward, but then also looking outward at the systems around us, um, and then listening to community voices who will say things like, for example, here in Ottawa, the representation we have at City Hall is dismal. We have one black city councillor, the first black city councillor ever to be elected, um, ever uh, to council. Um, so where's the representation? Where are the people who are not only brought to the table to talk about you know, various concerns, not only about racism, but even more broadly, where are they and why aren't they not only at the table, but helping to set the table, helping to set the agenda? What are the barriers for people's participation? And oftentimes when you're looking for the barriers, that's where you're going to see where the discrimination is happening. And that's where you're going to know that we need to do work. Amira, thank you for being the voice that you are in talking about this, and thank you for taking some time for us this afternoon. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for reaching out. That's Amira Al-Gawabi. Amira is someone who has been on TEDx Talks and writes columns for the Toronto Star and is an advocate for making change and doing it for the right reasons. And thank you to her for being here. We spoke with Sarnia Mayor Mike Bradley yesterday about reopening the border. It's been open to certain things, but reopening would mean open it. And tourists could go like everyone normally has. You want to go over to Port Huron? You want to eat at... And, you know, it's been so long, I can't even picture off the top of my head a restaurant that you would go to Port Huron to eat at. Big Boy? Chili's? Yeah, maybe. Okay, There's. I still have two up there rattling around. But those sorts of trips. Now, 
we have seen over the last 16 months stories of people who have been away from Canada trying to get home. Last year, it was snowbirds trying to get home, and then it was snowbirds trying to get back across, and then it was snowbirds trying to get back home. We are going to see some changes in the way that quarantines are done for anybody who has received both doses of a vaccine. And that was announced not long ago, within the last 90 minutes, by Federal Health Minister Patty Haidu. want to introduce you to somebody who has been dealing with the fact that the borders are closed and the quarantine restrictions, as much as you can poke holes in parts of them, they can still be very restrictive. And this person has been dealing with all of that. Please welcome to London Live, Andrea Kalamadil. Andrea has been in school abroad and has not been home for, for I think it's a while. Andrea, thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Andrea, how long has it been since you have been back in Canada? Uh, so I haven't been home in about six months. In about six months. So where have you been? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently in Portland, Maine. Okay. And what mm-hmm. has taken you to Portland, Maine? So I am a medical student, and when the COVID originally happened, uh, we had to all fly home and start classes online. And so I had been taking all my medical school classes virtually on Zoom. And it wasn't the best learning experience for me. It was really hard to learn clinical skills off of a screen with no one to really confirm whether or not I was doing things correctly. So um, at the time when I left, it was easier for um, Canadians to go to the U.S. uh, instead of the other way around. So we went to the States together so we could, um, me and my friends, sorry, so we could get together and practice our clinical skills together. So med school on Zoom, I think you've painted an interesting picture right (laughs) there. So, So you wind up in the United States, which makes the education component of this a little bit easier, but... What have you run into now that we're looking at, and I'm, I'm not sure, is, is med school going 12 months of the year these days? You can probably tell I've never applied. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we, so I'm at, at a Caribbean medical school, and so we go all year round, and our first clinical rotation site is in Portland. Um, but, yeah, essentially, like, we're on, on camera, like, at 8 o'clock in the morning until 4 p.m., and... We get to do some virtual labs where we see some patients on the screen and see some of our doctors um, explain procedures to us. But other than that, like, we don't really have any hands-on experience at this point. Canada has had some strict quarantine rules. How have those impacted you thinking about even coming back to Canada? So uh, our semesters are four months at a time. So at the end of April was the end of our semester. And We had actually, my friend and I, who is also Canadian, we tried to drive across, like that was the original plan. And then we got into the situation where we, first of all, couldn't really figure out how to drive, find a proper place to rent a car to drive all the way back to Canada. But then when we're trying to fly in, 
the hotel quarantining fees were just unmanageable. And as medical students, you could probably guess that we're already in a tremendous amount of debt. So it was just very much out of our budget. So we kind of were at a standstill where, you know, like our lease was up in Portland. We were supposed to go home. We didn't have anywhere to go. So, you know, we scrambled for a little bit trying to get ourselves to a new place just because we couldn't afford the hotel fees. Wow. We're talking with Andrea Kalamadil, and we're talking about Andrea being in med school, med school that has taken her to the United States, and then looking at coming back and facing the quarantine issues. Can I ask you what your vaccine status is? Yes, so I am fully vaccinated. Um, That was the one perk of being stuck and not being able to come home at the end of April was that um, Maine had opened up the vaccinations to everyone that was in the state, um, including students who were there. Um, or here, sorry, I should say. And so we were able to both get uh, vaccinated two weeks apart, and it's been almost three or four weeks since my second dose. And yet, even with that, you look and, and the quarantine rules are what they are. However, the federal health minister has announced that they're going to be loosening those restrictions for people who have received both doses of a vaccine. What is it like to hear those words? Honestly, I was shocked when I heard this morning. I was already looking into booking a ticket. I honestly found one looking in or like hoping to book it tonight so I can come home and see my family and friends um, hopefully next month. And I guess the other thing, too, on top of that is because we're here um, just uh, as friends trying to, you know, learn together, I'm on a tourist visa, so like the other issue that we've run into is that that tourist visa expires in july so it's kind of like a situation where i was like i need to go home but i can't (laughs) and the and the clock is ticking i mean you're not in certain countries where they don't you know they're not they're not going to take complete exception to you not having a current visa but you need to have a current visa to be there exactly exactly and i don't want to run into that situation where i'm overstaying my visit at all so um if I had push come to shove, if the news wasn't announced today, you know, I really was strongly considering trying to pull together some money from somewhere to do the hotel quarantine. Because, you know, we have I have elderly family at home, can't really go there, for example. So, Had you investigated how much it would have cost you in order to do the hotel quarantine? Yes. So I did make some calls to a few hotels um, originally in April uh, when I was trying to come, end of April when I was trying to come home. And the prices ranged quite a bit. The cheapest option I really found was 900 a 1000 something like that per night. And I, like, it just wasn't justifiable in the sense that you're there for the three days, but if you're positive, then, like, how do you, like, I wouldn't have been able to afford any more than that. I don't even think I would have been able to afford the three days period, but I definitely don't think I would have been able to afford more than that. But, Andrea, yeah, you you just described a number, and as you were saying that, I'm sure we were all listening along, and you had said that the cheapest option that you had found was $900, and I think all of us expected you to stop there. That was per night. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So pulling together funds. Yeah. You you have to make a lot of calls usually to put together something that's going to be $2,700 or more. Wow. What was it like mm-hmm. to hear that, that, that that was the cheapest option you were going to have? Honestly, it was really disappointing. And then, like, staying in Portland longer became 
obviously a better idea because I could get a whole month of rent for that one night stay, for example. Um, so it was really disappointing and I was really upset. I was really looking forward to seeing my family um, and my friends, but um, I guess you just have to make the best of the situation you're handed. Yeah, you know what? I think a whole lot of people have had to look at it and, and do it that way. So the idea that we're finally at a point because of our vaccination status, because of, for instance, your vaccination status, to mm -hmm. be able to come home, what will be the, the first thing you look forward to doing? When you think about being able to come home, if everything carries out as it's supposed to, as the federal health minister has outlined, and we're still waiting on a lot more of the specific details, but what will be the thing that that you start picturing in your mind that you want to do when you're able to come home? I mean, granted, I'm still going to have online Zoom, <laughs> but um, I'm really excited to honestly see my puppy. He got really sick last month, and uh, it was very serious. So, you know, I was very, like, just, like, I was really upset that I couldn't come home, you know, because in any other situation, I would have flown home right away in a situation where I didn't know if I could continue to see my dog and so i'm just really excited he's okay he's re he's okay now so i'm beyond grateful for that so the first thing i'm looking forward to is seeing him and holding him again what's it like andrea and this is kind of completely unrelated getting uh -huh. yourself ready to enter the healthcare field given what we've been going through in this world for the last 18 months i mean the last year or so what i've seen is incredible heroes come like in this profession who have worked tirelessly night and day away from their family, away from their friends, unable to see their kids, you know, just due to the fact that they're being exposed every day. And I think it's an incredible honor to go into a field where I can make an impact um, like that one day. Well, thank you for doing that, and we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today, Andrea. Keep safe and uh, keep your eye on those rules, and you've got both doses, and both doses is going to mean a whole lot going forward, it sounds like. So here's hoping it means you get to hug your dog. Thank you. Take care. Take care. That's Bye. Andrea Kalamadil. Andrea is a medical student, and was trying Zoom classes from home, being a medical student. That wasn't working out in the same way, and so she and a fellow student ended up in the United States, in Maine, and because of that, they have not been able to get back because they're trying to follow the rules, even with both doses of a vaccine. That is changing as of today, and there's an idea of what it means to one Londoner who's going to be able to perhaps take advantage of the fact that she has both doses of her vaccine. We have vaccine news that we want to make sure you know about because it does impact tomorrow. And we're lucky enough to have with us right now Steve Turner, Director of Environmental Health and Infectious Diseases at the Middlesex London Health Unit. Steve, how are things? Mike, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, things have been going fast and furious for the past five, six months, and uh, and every day holds something new for us. But uh, so far, we've uh, vaccinated over 300,000 Londoners and uh, still going very strong. So, uh, so well, it's an exciting work. 
That's good. You've got the the double duty going on of uh, helping to run the city and helping to run this. So thanks for all of that. Let's talk about what is happening tomorrow and when it is happening and, and where it's happening. Give us the lowdown. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so tomorrow we're holding a pop-up clinic at City Plaza, uh, right at our health unit location uh, on the corner of King and uh, Clarence uh, Streets. Uh, the uh, the pop-up location will be uh, in operation from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and uh, no appointments are necessary. The purpose of the clinic uh, tomorrow is to try and uh, help those who might have had challenges getting to one of the mass vaccination clinics or one of the pharmacies or the family doctors that have provided uh, vaccination thus far. So uh, really looking at, at some who have had barriers with, with transportation, um, perhaps uh, uh, some uh, marginalization, uh, underhoused, homeless, um, perhaps cultural barriers, uh, really for, for, uh, very much focused for those who, who haven't been able to, uh, to get one, to one of the traditional sites instead. You and I can talk about this, but how do you go about getting the word out beyond, say, an interview on the radio or with another media outlet and, and that sort of thing? How do you do it? Yeah, it's a great question, Mike. One of the uh, the challenges uh, and one of the, the amazing opportunities that uh, that the pandemic has brought for us is the ability to work really closely with a lot of agencies throughout the community. And uh, and success uh, through through the pandemic has been uh, entirely dependent on partnerships and strong collaboration. So uh, we work really closely with uh, with a lot of the social agencies working through uh, through the core, especially uh, shelter agencies, uh, groups like London Care and uh, Salvation Army and the Men's Mission, and, uh, just to name a few. And those opportunities allow us to, uh, to promote through those agencies where their clients uh, can, can get the word directly. Uh, some might not be able to have access to, uh, to listen to the radio or to be able to, uh, to get online and, and see social media posts. So word of mouth is really important for us. So once again, it is tomorrow from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., at City Plaza. Now, people might hear that and think, okay, well, I'm going there too. Uh, Is this something that we want to kind of hold exclusively for some of the individuals who you just described? The the clinic is open to all. We want it to be a a low to no barrier clinic. Uh, So we we don't require identification. We do need to be able to get somebody's birth date and name and uh, and preferably address so that we can uh, make sure that we uh, get the right second dose into them when it comes time. Uh, The clinic is for first doses. So if you've already had a dose, this is not the clinic for you. Um, but uh, we, we would uh, we want to focus on those who have barriers and, and challenges in getting to one of our, our fixed sites. So if you're able to get to a fixed site, uh, then we would, would strongly suggest that that be the place for you. But uh, this is a clinic open to all. We are talking with Steve Turner, Director of Environmental Health and Infectious Diseases and Ward 11 Counselor with the City of London. Steve, we've had some confusion in terms of when, kind of all the way along, or how someone goes about getting their vaccination. Tomorrow, we do have people who are 70 and over able to try and book their second dose. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So um, before, uh, this Monday, we opened it up to those 80 plus and Thursday becomes the 70 plus. For those who uh, received their first dose, um, the, uh, those in those age groups are now eligible for uh, a shortened dose interval. So um, all of them would have received a second dose appointment uh, at, uh, um, uh, at four months. 
from the time of uh, booking. Uh, they're now eligible for a shortened dose interval, but they're they're quite uh, welcome to uh, to take the appointment that they have for their second dose in either circumstance if they want to move it forward. Uh, in order to do that. Um, you can go to our our vaccine uh, webpage, uh, COVID vaccine LM. That LM is for London Middlesex. Uh, .ca, and uh, there is a, a widget on the uh, on the booking website that allows you to rebook your your appointment. Um, if uh, if you had multiple appointments booked under one email address, uh, then you would need to call in to be able to manage that because it's associated with the, that email address right now. We're still uh, working on the programming associated with being able to separate that out, but uh, but it's helpful if anybody's trying to navigate through our system. We add about uh, about 3,500 appointments a day into the system. Um, so uh, obviously, when each new cohort uh, becomes eligible for uh, for a new booking or changing their bookings, uh, we do get a bit of a rush on the system. Uh, but uh, be patient uh, and, and know that we add about uh, about 3,500 appointments each day to the system uh, to be able to help uh, uh, rebook or book new appointments. Okay. Steve Turner joining us, Director of Environmental Health and Infectious Diseases with the Middlesex London Health Unit and Ward 11 City Councilor. One last thing, and I know that this kind of goes off into a different branch where we have vaccinations being looked at by public health, and then we have had vaccinations that have been done by private pharmacies or healthcare locations. Any recommendations you can give from what you've heard for people who are wondering what they do for their second dose if they've had their first dose at a pharmacy or at, say, a family doctor or a different pop-up clinic? Do they avoid going to public health for that second dose? Is it something they can do? What do you what do you tell us? Yeah, so we, we recommend that uh, everybody who had a first dose and needs to reschedule or is looking for their second dose and hasn't had one scheduled yet, uh, connect with the person or the organization that provided their first dose. That said, uh, public health can accommodate the, uh, the second doses uh, if, uh, uh, if there's challenges uh, in um, connecting with uh, the agency that provided the first one. Uh, there's, uh, there's no wrong door. We want to be able to make sure that uh, that everybody has the service and uh, and support that they need. Um, the uh, the ability to uh, to even go between jurisdictions is an option as well. Uh, but it's, it's always easiest when it's within within the same jurisdiction, same area. Steve, really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for doing this, and keep safe. Our pleasure. Thank you so much for the time and, uh, and the ability to uh, to spread the word. Uh, I would say uh, tomorrow there there is a limited number of doses, so um, we may uh, run out of doses before four o'clock. Uh, but uh, so if if you want to, to have your best opportunity earlier is better. Uh, we're going to try to avoid uh, having anybody queue up, but uh, but that may still happen. So um, so our apologies if it does. Uh, but this is uh, it's important that we uh, we lower as many barriers as we can to make sure as many people can get vaccinated as possible. That is tomorrow, City Plaza from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And as Steve says, better to get there earlier rather than later. If you know someone who you think might be able to benefit from this, it's a first-dose vaccination clinic, please let them know. Use that word of mouth because you've heard it here. So City Plaza and from 10 a.m. until 4 p.m. Steve, have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Mike. You as well, and I appreciate all the time. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 